1: everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling?
2: Oh, I think it's safe to say I might be jazzed.
1: Hey! It sounds like there was a few extra Zs in that jazzed.
2: Uh, there was, because you know that I love nothing more than to be able to say... Update. Oh, yes. Now, I have not even uh, told Lauren about this, dear listeners, but it has recently, like within the last few days, been brought to my attention that there is an update on a past episode that we did. Let's get into it. So do I have some typed out notes? I do. Of course she does. It's what she does. Yeah, I was prepared for this episode uh, a couple days ago. And then I learned about this update uh, yesterday and started like <laughs> feverishly making notes while rewatching Stranger Things. It is what it is. Uh, so in episode 50, we talked about the case of Kiara Coles. Yes. A quick recap for those who need it. Uh, Kiera Michelle Coles was born September 24, 1992. When she turned 26, Kiera had a job as a postal worker in Chicago, Illinois, and was three months pregnant. Her baby was due April 23, 2019. On October 3, 2018, Kiera called in sick to work. This was confirmed by the United States Postal Service security camera footage appeared to show Kiara in her postal uniform walking down her street that morning uh, it was later found that the woman in the video was actually one of Kiara's co-workers who lived in the same area Police stated Kiara was seen on security cameras at an ATM at some point before her disappearance she withdrew four hundred dollars. Uh, After Kiera's mother, Karen Phillips, called the police, they did a welfare check on October 4th and found nothing out of place at Kiera's home. Her car was found parked outside the residence. Inside the car was Kiera's cell phone, her purse, prenatal vitamins, and a packed lunch. Even though Kiera's purse was in the car, her wallet, including her driver's license and credit cards, were missing. For unknown reasons, a missing persons report wasn't issued until October 8th. But from the best that her family and friends can tell, Kiera Coles has not been seen since October 2nd, 2018. So Kiera was described as an African-American female, 5'4", 125 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. Her ears were pierced. She had five tattoos, including a heart on her left hand. The phrase lucky Libra on her back, a jaguar's head on the back of her shoulder, words on her wrist, and then words on her chest. Kiera was known for her vibrant personality and described as loving, hardworking, stubborn, and caring. Uh, The Chicago police chief at the time said that they had, quote, a minimum of two or three people of interest, and that they had, quote, narrowed down the group to a personal associate of hers, a friend who was the last person to see her. And that associate, I believe, is likely Kiara's boyfriend, Joshua Simmons. The best I could find about Simmons is he was born December 1988. Kiera started dating him when she was 20, so they had been together more than five years. Prior to their relationship, Sim- Simmons was dating a woman named Kiera Smith, who he had a daughter with. Simmons also had a daughter with another woman, whose name I don't know, The woman allegedly gave full custody to Simmons and was not involved in her child's life. So Simmons and Smith lived together for years, raising their two daughters. At some point, Simmons started dating Kiera, and it seems Kiera and Smith didn't get along very well. The women had an argument that got so heated that Kiera was banned from Smith's house.
1: Mm. Uh,
2: Simmons had made a... post on Facebook that indicated that Smith might have also been pregnant at the time of Kiara's disappearance, he has since deactivated his account. Uh, According to Kiara's mother, when she spoke with Kiara earlier in the day on October 2nd, Kiara mentioned that Simmons was going over to her place later that night. On June 14th, 2022, again, up to date, uh, Chicago police released the security footage of Kiara at the ATM. We previously knew that she had gone to one, but with this update, we now know it was at 1043 p.m. on October 2nd. Police also released security camera footage of Kiera arriving at her home on the 8100 block of South Vernon earlier that night. She was carrying multiple bags into her house. Police say shortly after Kiara arrived home, a person of interest arrived. I am assuming the person of interest was Joshua Simmons. Kiera and Simmons then left the house soon after, and Kiera drove her car. Um, Minutes later, she was seen at the ATM. Police have not stated what store the ATM was at. They said it was at uh, the 8600 block of South Cottage Grove. And from what I've heard, that is a Walgreens in Chatham. So is seen at the ATM. She makes two separate withdrawals for a total of $400 at 10.43 p.m. Three minutes later, she leaves the store. That was the last recorded image of her. Less than an hour later, Kiara's car was seen arriving and parking in another part of town. The person of interest, who again I'm assuming is Simmons, got out of the passenger side of the vehicle Kiera did not get out of the car at that time. The next morning, Simmons drove Kiera's car and parked it near her residence. He went inside Kiera's house and came out carrying a few unidentifiable items. Then he got into his own car, which had been parked there overnight. When questioned by police, he gave varied accounts of the last time that he saw Kiera. So thanks to the update, we now know Kiera visited the ATM shortly before her disappearance, and that the police's main person of interest, likely Joshua Simmons, drove Kiera's car and left it parked outside of her house that morning. And remember, the car had Kiera's cell phone and purse in it, not her wallet. Kiera allegedly called in sick to work that morning, but now I'm convinced she did not make it home the night before, Kiera was described as obsessed with social media, so if she spent the night at Simmons' place, for example, why would she have left her phone in the car? Someone obsessed with social media is going to be flipping through their phone randomly throughout night. Yeah. Uh, I was suspicious of Simmons before, but the fact that we now know he drove her car home the next morning makes me even more suspicious also suspicious, Simmons did not help with any search for Kiera, and shortly after Kiera's disappearance, Simmons and his ex, Kiera Smith, left town. Smith at the time was working a government job, she quit, and they all moved to, to uh, Gonzales, Louisiana. At the time of Kiera's disappearance, Simmons was on medical leave from work. So is it possible that Simmons and Smith came up with a plan to get rid of Kiera and the next morning Smith called in to work claiming to be Kiera and maybe buy them some time to dispose of the body? Of course, we all hope that there is a world in which Kiera and her child are out there somewhere living happily. But if we're being realistic, I think we know that that is very unlikely But for her partner of multiple years, the father of her unborn child, to not help with the search and then move out of state with his ex almost immediately after, it screams guilty. I, of course, am just speculating. We have no definitive proof on it. But uh, shout out to our dear listener at Jenny Spin for sharing the update with us over on Twitter. Wowzer. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm curious because we know that there was a packed lunch in her car. Here's my question. Yeah. So he goes into the apartment the next morning. He drives the car home, goes into the apartment. He's seen leaving with a few things. Did he plant that lunch in her car to make it look like?
2: Like she was going to work. Yeah. It's possible.
1: I mean, who knows,
2: but, or... I guess maybe
1: he could have put it in there at any point that morning from his own home, for that matter. Yeah. I'm just very curious about the lunch. And I know that that makes – it sounds funny. I'm not being funny. It's just a detail that that it's like he was the last person to see her. We yeah. know that she was not seen after – she wasn't seen after that. She was seen um, – uh, at the ATM, on the ATM. Yeah. and then we know that he got out of the passenger side of her car. Yes, on another side well, of town.
2: At, I assume at some they didn't specifically say it, but I assume another security camera right showed it because they were able to say he got out of the passenger side. Nobody got out of the driver's side. Right. So we. So why was we, I she mean, even in the car
1: at that point? That's my question. Could have been somebody else. Yeah, um, but the lunch to me. Is a, is a, is is honestly a key clue because if it's, you know, where do I go as a detective? I go and say, does she have the things, the packaging of that lunch? Does it look like it's from? It matches stuff in her house. Sure. You, you, know, you know what I mean. Like, did it come from her house or not? Because to me, if you can prove that that was not made by her, then then we we've got somebody who's definitely planting fake evidence or you know what I mean yes. like oh, God, I don't know yeah. I just feel like that's one of the details that always stood out to me in this case I was just like the lun- I feel like there's something about that lunch it's possible that she made it herself and it's possible that this would be in a no this clue goes nowhere but sure. I just think that there is the possibility considering the- how mysterious this disappearance was that there is one specific person who saw her last who then went off with another woman shortly after it just feels yeah. like there could be that could be fake evidence that was planted to make it look like she was on her way to work when we know that she was not
2: it's a great point because i mean look i i get that pregnant women are going to be hungry look i get that non pregnant women are going to be hungry <laughs> for the love of god let us eat yes um but it's a weird detail like unless she left her house thinking I'm going to go stay at his house tonight. I'll bring the lunch with me, put it. That's possible. In the, in but the then at his place. But then it's like, did she also have her stuff for work? That was going to be my next question. Because otherwise, why wouldn't she have left that at home? So it's just such a weird, you're right. It's a weird detail to why specifically was there that lunch do you mean it was like a full lunch? Was it just random snacks that she was going to have throughout the day? Because, yeah, was that planted to make it seem like, oh, well, she cl- look, she was clearly heading to work. And yeah. why was her purse there but not her wallet?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's conf- – th- yeah, this one's confounding again. And the fact that it's like he knows something. We know he knows. Like, it's – Regardless of it's it is maddening, and that's it's so frustrating when it's like this person was the last person to see her alive. He knows something. That is a fact. That's not me saying that he's guilty of any crime. I'm well, he is guilty of a crime, which is I think obstruction of justice or whatever. Because if your story keeps changing, that's a you know obvious red flag. But also, you have to have a clue. If you didn't do anything connected to her disappearance, and you're withholding information. Mm -hmm. come on it's just it's so frustrating because if he if he legitimately had nothing to do with her disappearance yeah what do you get by lying just tell them tell the police what any detail that you have as a human wouldn't you want to give the details needed to help this person that you at one point loved be found again it's just such a to me it's like it's such a red flag of of some form of guilt, whether and again, that's oh, not me yeah. saying that he physically killed her. Um, but what I'm saying is, is that he is absolutely withholding information. That is a fact. It, you, you have. Oh, to be. he is. He absolutely is. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, and again, not helping in her search, moving away shortly after with another woman. I mean, this is extremely suspicious behavior, and the fact that he yeah. wouldn't course correct. You know what I mean? And, like, make it look like you cared a little bit more is fascinating to me.
2: And it's also, I'm dying to know, why did you drive her car home? Why was it important for the car to be there? Well, I guess it's just because he wanted to get his own car. Sure. But where was she? Exactly. Why couldn't she have driven you to the house so you could have picked up your own car?
1: 100%.
2: I mean, this kind of thing just makes me like everybody's house should have a security camera pointing at the street. Yep. Because it's the only way that they saw him being the one to pull up at the house. It's the only way they saw her prior to it going to her house, dropping stuff off. But it's just, it's so maddening. I can't imagine being with someone for five years and then them going missing and me being like, "Ah, well, we had a good run. All right, well, I guess I'm out." Like it's wild.
1: Yeah, it's just not typical behavior, which again speaks to guilt about something. Oh yeah. Again, I'm not. I'm. We don't know. We don't know what happened. Um, we have no idea. It's hard to speculate. But, again, the the more you don't you withhold, the more it looks not great.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, there's there's nothing he's done that looks on the up and up if I may. Like there's you may. Nothing that seems like it was the right move. So no. I just don't I don't get I mean even the police their words were like, "Oh, well, he's given varied accounts on when he last saw her." And it's like I I wish that something could be done. I know nothing can be done in a case like that but it's like we we know that you know something yes so you're not hiding anything so just tell us what you know
1: yeah and again the only reasons why people tend to withhold information as we've done this show long enough i think i can say this this yep. statement the only pr- reason someone withholds information is either to protect themselves or to protect someone else there's no other reason that you don't withhold information there's no other reason right what? why oh, yeah. nobody else ever does that like it doesn't make any sense
2: yeah, yeah he's either it's protecting so himself or he's protecting that x that he you know left with like there i remember there was uh The ex had posted, like, something on Facebook just a few months before, and it was, like, a happy birthday to him or whatever, and she called him, like, her, he was her, like, ride or die or whatever, and it was a picture of them, and, like, his hand was on her ass. And I'm like, that's just not, like, he was very clearly dating someone else at this point. I don't know how old that photo was, but that's just not the thing, that's not the energy to put out in the world when you're no longer a couple. No, No. So I do unless have a lot of questions. They still were a couple. Well, that's the other thing. Like, it was his Facebook post that was commenting that, or hinting, that his ex was potentially pregnant at the same time. So why would he post about it unless he was the father?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the detail of the prenatal vitamins in Kira Coles' car. I know they're both named Kira. Um Yeah. And, you know, and the fact
0: – I
1: mean, it's just – its it doesn't look great. Again, it's like, sir, you realize how bad this looks for you right now, don't you? Like – and to me, knowing what we know of law enforcement after doing yeah. the show this long, they yeah. don't release stuff like this without a hugely orchestrated reason, right? So sure. much like they withhold the police – the police withholds, you know, information – for a reason they release it for a reason. So it says to me, if they're basically saying we really think it's this one guy and here's some new footage and whatever, it feels like they're trying to put pressure on either him personally or someone sure. a- around him that knows something because it's like, we are close guys. Like that's to me what I take from the police, um, releasing this information, which yeah. I will give them credit for, uh, it's it's nice to see that they're following up because it doesn't
2: oh. happen often. <laughs> yeah. And also, if they're doing it specifically to put pressure on him, good. 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 I'm glad he needs the pressure. Tell us what you know. Yeah.
0: Because at this point, if it
2: was an accident. Exactly. Well, now it's been too late to be like, it was an accident. I was afraid. It's like, uh-huh. Just tell us what you know. Tell us what you know, because that's exactly it. I mean, again, she
1: had just gotten a large sum of money out of the bank. Then mm-hmm. they drove to the other side of town. Did something happen with someone that you met up with? Were you meeting up with someone to exchange money for goods, for to pay a debt? Who knows? But did you encounter someone and she was taken or or something happened to her that legitimately – wasn't connected to you but you're scared to tell the truth is that what's going on because sir if that's what t- what happened you are not saving yourself because nope. they are going to finger you for murder <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean like it's like again you're you're it, it's there's no good way out of this i guess is my point point. and i guess no. for him it's been what four years so coming upon four years so maybe in his mind he did do the thing that serves him the best
2: Yeah. I just, for me, it's the fact that her wallet, like her purse was in the car, but her wallet wasn't. So then I'm like, when they left that store, did they go to an ATM that didn't have a camera? Like, did they go somewhere else and make another deposit? And that's why she got out of the car with her wallet only. And then something happened at that point. It's like, just ping the cell phone. Just tell us. Can't they ping the cell phone and figure
1: out what the route was? I don't know how cl- how close they can get.
2: Oh, I have no idea. But, but you would I, think there would be some sort of way of doing it. At least a loose route.
1: I feel like, again, this is the way that we would approach this. Then it's like, yeah. well, let's map out all the ATMs between the one that we she was at with the footage and yeah. this other location where we saw him at. Where, where between there, let's look at the potential yeah. routes. Let's map them out and then pull all that. Pull all those, all that camera footage. Is there camera footage again, that got missed somehow? It's possible because they. I don't. I mean, I don't know how it works. Obviously, I don't know how much they pull, but um, yeah. I mean, these are the questions, right? That it's, it's. Uh, I. I guess at the end of the day, I am just impressed that they're following up because again, it does not. Oh, always yeah. happen. So that's that's good. Uh, but yes, wow, what an update! What I an know, update. right?
2: I coming was out hot. Very excited for. For photos, I liked seeing the video. I was like, "This, yes, I like seeing that it's still like as opposed to hearing that it's ongoing to see physically, like there's movement in some way." So yeah, I mean, it would be great to have a better update at some point down the line. But yeah, I mean, it well, took listen, this is, is a lot better that.
1: than what I had brought for the top of this show. Uh, <laughs> what I had brought was just a. a, a <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A fun tale about me texting Christy today and going, "I can be ready. I just need to take a shower," and then I didn't take the shower. And the reason <laughs> why was I was sitting down to eat, and uh, I was like, "I'll just put something on to watch while I eat, and then I'll, you know, just for a couple minutes, and then I'll pause it and take my shower and get ready." But sure. I made the dumb choice of putting on that new movie, "Good Luck to You, Leo Grande" or "Leo Grand," whatever it is. Sure, the How Emma is it? Thompson. Yeah. And, uh, riveting. That's the answer. Uh, riveting. That's why I didn't take the shower. I got. I got rushed. Uh, look what a fool I am. Put on a reality show or something that you can pause after ten minutes. Don't put on a film with one of the greatest actors of our generation, Emma Thompson, and also this uh, gentleman who I have. I will truthfully say I have. I don't know that I've seen him in in other things, but this uh, Daryl McCormack. Uh,
2: very compelling, <laughs> compelling performance. Okay. Okay, well, this, I, see, I mentioned it, uh, I think I mentioned this movie to my husband the other day where I was like, Emma Thompson's in something new and I'm going to need it. And you I've are. seen the trailer, it's and everything I need. Yeah, I'm going to need mm-hmm. it. Uh, so I'm glad that, uh, well, I'm glad that it's out now. Um, I am going to need to see it, but I love, <laughs> yeah, look, I am the type that will be like, you know what, I'm going to sit down have my lunch. I should find a show. To watch just like a 20-minute, oh, this show's like 40-some minutes. Oh, I guess it'll do. And lunch is done in three. So so then it's just like watching. It's like, well, I have no choice. I put it on. I can't stop it now. I'm the worst for choosing what to watch during a meal because it's never going to be short. No.
1: No. And again, I just, I should have known. I should have known. Again, the subject matter, if, if you're not familiar, um, I mean, it says it in the trailer, essentially, so this isn't a spoiler. Yeah. Emma sure. Thompson hires a sex worker, and they yeah. meet in a hotel. That is the premise of the film. How on earth did I think, I'll be able to disengage and pause this after seven minutes? Like, come <laughs> on. Get real.
2: I, look, anyway. I, but now that the- I know, I'm amazed. <laughs> That we're here right now. Well, again, I did have to pause it after 45
1: minutes, and even that was difficult. I was like, well, this is a natural stopping point, I guess. I can't, listen, I can't wait to do this episode. Uh, And then I can't wait to say goodbye so I can get back into it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I I will watch it. I will watch it when I have time. Uh, The second that we close this Zoom is when we'll have time. Um, Of course. But anyway, very quickly before we get into this week's case, uh, a couple of quick things. One, this, people don't know this, but this episode is the last episode of season three of True Crime and Cocktails. Yeah. We have decided (laughs) to start a new season. Mm -hmm. And I know what you're thinking. uh, Does that really mean anything, Lauren? And the answer is Yes, but no, but, you know, I think that, I think it's important to mark occasions, celebrations, all of the above. But we decided we wanted to do a new season. Um, and yeah. there's going to be some new things in season four. Yeah. The Cocktails, which I'm just going to lightly tease. You know what I mean? I'm like, they're thinking, what are these things? I don't know. You're going to have to tune in to find <laughs> out. Or we'll release a mm-hmm. promo video between now and the premiere of season four, and then you'll find out. Of um, but yes, yeah, so this is going to be the last episode of season three. We're going to take a couple weeks off to get prepped and ready to go. And then we're launching into season four <laughs> um, uh, mid July. I don't have it in front of me. July 19th. July 19th. Uh, and what that means, though, is there's new art. There's new it does. art. And yeah. I am wearing some of the new merch. I got my samples in the mail. Uh, So if you're watching on YouTube and you're like, what's that? The answer is it's our adorable, adorable season four art. Mm -hmm. Season three, it's our real mugs. Season four, we've gone back to our roots. We've got an updated cartoon version of us, of course, um, by our amazing uh, artist and friend at Purple Bones Art. You can find them on Instagram.
2: And uh, I'm jazzed.
1: I'm jazzed about all of it.
2: Yeah. I love (laughs) that... When we first talked about season three. Yeah. We were like, well, season three will just pretty much go for as long as we want to do the show. Yeah. There's no point to ever going to a season four because what's the point? And then we, I, I can't remember exactly how it happened. I don't remember if the art came first in our minds of like, maybe we want some new art. Or if I think that happened and then we were like, maybe we could. Add some new stuff. And then we were like, well, this smells like a new season. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I think it kind of was organic like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think part of it was because I I look so different now because my hair is blonde yes. and short. And uh, it was like I don't look like the photo version of us anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I also don't look like the old cartoons. I think that was part of it, too. I think this was, yeah. you know, um, part of it was self-serving that I was like, I think we need to update. I think you came to, came to it to me, and, and then I was like, absolutely, yes. I don't look like any of this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, a, it's a
2: non-negotiable suddenly that I didn't know I had. I think my favorite part of all of it, though, is that once we decided, you know what? Yeah, we'll do new art, new season. It'll be great. And I was like, okay, great. So, like, in October, when we're going into our second anniversary, to which Lauren goes, I don't want to wait that long. <laughs>
1: I, know. I was like, I was thinking July. <laughs> we had this conversation like three weeks ago.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was easily May when we were oh, like, yeah. should yep. we? <laughs> yep. And then I was like, oh, are we going to be ready for July? And she's like, I don't know. Let's go <laughs> yeah.
1: for it. I don't know. Well, and I think that that really, again, what you've just <laughs> described is how this show even exists. Me yeah. going, I think we should just do it. And then you saying, really? And me going, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how, wow. approach, that's how I approach life. That how is hard, us. How hard can it be? In a nutshell. That's, you know, yeah, exactly. But anyway, uh, I'm so excited. What I like, too, about about the new art, uh, well, first of all, <laughs> everything. But second of all, um, is, is that the first season, we were drawn as little detectives. Yes. The second season, we were drawn a- at a sleepover. Yes. Third season- promo shot the two of us we were together it was during the pandemic we got to use this but season four I feel that it's just encapsulated really who we have become (laughs) over the past year and a half doing this show Mm -hmm. Christy and tie-dye holding a slurpee me with my short blonde hair and my long nails holding a tarot card it just really feels like we've, we've we've captured something here and then of course the easter eggs on the uh the laptop the stickers on the laptop which is uh yeah. so all referenced uh all references to us things that have uh, come up on the show
2: i mean i just think it's chef's kiss oh i i couldn't be happier i mean yeah. i remember the day uh we talked about what stickers go on the laptop that was a conversation. stickers on a laptop itself is already a a throw, <laughs> like a yeah. throwback easter egg to uh all of that um but uh yeah i mean god i've come so far i mean i have a laptop covered in stickers uh the other day my six-year-old brought a sticker home that's like a a junior police badge because a police officer came to their class and spoke with them gave them all little tattoos and gave them all little stickers and my son was like well what am i going to do with this sticker and old me would have been like well we should put it somewhere nice and then nine years from now, when we've really decided on a place to put it, we put it there. But what did I say? I don't know, bud. What would you like to do with it? And he goes, I don't know. And I cannot believe the words came out of my mouth. Would you like to put it on your water bottle? And he goes, my water bottle for school? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I would. And so now he he's his uh, he's little, little Officer Oxborough with his little water bottle with the little police, junior police badge or whatever on it. And he thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. Listen. And so I was like, it took so much for mom to be willing to do that, man. <laughs> so I hope you appreciate. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to end the cycle. It, it stops with you. It stops here. <laughs> this insanity stops with me. You know, we don't have a name yeah.
1: for the season, Because we had, season one was the Unsolved Mysteries edition. Season two was Famous Fatalities. Season three, we didn't have a name. And we don't have a name for season four. But what I'm realizing is, the name for season four should
2: simply be growth. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say our true selves. But yeah. Yeah. Growth. uh, Growth. There you go. Season four. We've come a long way, baby. (laughs) Oh my God, 18 <laughs> months, more
1: like 18 years, you know? yeah. It was like...
2: It's amazing. We've done so many seasons in so few years. Yeah. And again, we say, well, season 4 I'll just go on for <laughs> yeah,
1: however it'll go on long t- we want. Yep, until I change my hair again. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we decide that it's time for something, for a refresh. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I realize if we're putting out <laughs> new art, <sighs> Well, that means I got to cut my hair before then, because (laughs) we got that art made for season one where my hair is all long and I chopped like five, six inches off my hair before we went live. It's like, but we already did the, uh, and I have been dying for a haircut. So it's like, maybe that's just the joke of it where we put out an art and I go, okay, it's time.
1: It's time to not match time. Yeah. Um, Listen, what a gift It'll in It'll match our again lives. eventually. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Your hair grows so fast, and it does. Very, very it does. envious of that. Um, now, listen. Before we get into the case, what you drinking over there?
2: Oh uh, well, I mean it's a, it's a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, so I've just got a water uh, and a lime slurpee for today.
1: Listen, it is a Saturday afternoon, and I got a little. Hamoud last night, if you haven't sure. been able to tell from my lower register voice at the moment. Um, so for. what do I have going on? Uh, in one hand, I got a Gatorade, and in the other hand, I got another Gatorade. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's yep. where we're at. We never record on Saturdays. We rarely record in the day, but again, we've, again hashtag growth. Here we are. Um, uh, what a gift. It's all just such a gift. Now listen. Before we get into this, can you just pronounce her last name for me one more time, this case? Because I asked you before, and I should have asked before we started, and I forgot. And I'm scared to mispronounce it.
2: Oh, I'm terrified. But I need you to know, from the best I can tell, everything I have heard, it's McDermott. McDermott. Yes. Like Dean McDermott,
1: but with a D. McDermott.
2: Yes, and I would say a far better person. <laughs> he he was a cheater. Listen. I'll leave
1: it there. <sighs> All right. So, dear listeners, we, are of course, are discussing the case of Sarah McDermid uh, on this episode of the show. If you're not familiar, never fear, because I have got a synopsis right here. And I'm not going to apologize for the rhyming. <laughs> we should be thanking you for it.
2: You know, True Crime and Croc,
1: True Crime and crocktails. Wow.
2: True Crime and Croc, t- twice. Now we're going to have to have our own line of Crocs. <laughs> oh, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. The little buttons. to design the little things that go on it, the little martini glass, the little oh, uh, that magnifying a really glass, a little tarot card, a little Slurpee. I think we should just get these just to have, if nothing else. <laughs>
1: Uh, what I was going to say yeah. is, true crime and cocktails, we don't always drink on the show, but the good news is is that I'm absolutely a little a little drunk from last night. So you're still getting that energy, which is great. Yeah. True crime and cocktails, coming to you. So, the case of Sarah McDermott. In July 1990, 23-year-old Sarah McDermott enjoyed a few rounds of tennis with some friends after work before taking the train home. Sarah was seen arriving at the train station shortly after 10 p.m. and then seen walking to the station's parking lot. And while Sarah's car was later found in the parking lot, Sarah has not been seen since. So what happened to Sarah McDermott? Were there any similar cases in the area? Has anyone been charged in connection with Sarah's disappearance? And how are four different serial killers linked to this case? Christy Oxborough investigates.
2: Four. That's wild. It's, I mean, I know they're out there, but seeing them all in one small spot is uh, something else. Uh, So disclaimer, as always, this episode will contain mentions of sexual assault, substance abuse, child abuse, animal abuse, and descriptions of graphic violence. So trigger warning for those who need it. And don't worry, Laura and I went as low on the animal abuse as physically possible. Thank you. Uh, And my early apologies if I mispronounce any of these names or places. I have done my best to find the proper pronunciations online. So just know that I genuinely tried. Of course. We always do, but. We do. So Sarah McDermott was born November 15, 1966, at 2 a.m. to Peter and Sheila McDermott. Sheila said that they were, quote, thrilled to bits with Sarah's arrival. Just seven hours later, doctors informed Sheila that Sarah was having difficulty breathing and that she needed to be transported to a larger hospital. Sheila had to wait at the first hospital for six days Before she was discharged to be able to go see her newborn daughter. Oh, my God. Sarah was eventually diagnosed with Pierre Robin syndrome, which according to HopkinsMedicine.org is a, quote, rare congenital birth defect characterized by an underdeveloped jaw, backward displacement of the tongue, and upper airway obstruction. Sarah remained intubated for the first three months of her life and remained in hospital until she was four months old. Oh my word. Sarah then remained on heart medication until she was five years old. But otherwise, Sarah had an idyllic childhood. Sheila later gave birth to Alistair uh, in July 1969, and like Sarah, Alistair was diagnosed with Pierre Robin syndrome. But according to their mother, Sarah was never jealous of Alistair or the attention that he got. Sarah loved her brother so much that she often mothered him, even when she was a toddler. The McDermott family briefly moved from Scotland to Townsville, Queensland, uh, Australia in 1974. But when Peter's father wanted to retire, Peter moved the family back to the UK, or more specifically Scotland, in 1978, so that Peter could take over the family business. When the business went under, Peter and Sheila wanted to return to Australia, but since both kids were in high school at the time, it didn't seem fair to uproot them, so the plan was to wait until after the kids graduated, and then they would all move to Australia. And I'm gonna say, as someone who was uprooted numerous times throughout my youth, kudos to Peter and Sheila for putting their dreams on hold. I know not every parent has that choice, but I felt it was lovely that they let their children finish high school with the friends that they knew. Sarah graduated in 1984 and studied travel and tourism at Aberdeen College, which is now East Scotland College. In 1987, the McDermid's moved back to Australia for good, this time staying in Melbourne Sarah was disappointed in the move, missing her friends back home, but she soon expanded her local social circle and had plans for her best friend to visit Australia for a month in October 1990. Possibly from the repeated international moves, the McDermid's were a very close family unit. Friends said that they always felt welcome in the home and that Sarah's parents were funny, kind, warm, and loving. Sarah always spoke very highly of her parents. In January 1990, the McDermott's purchased their first home and moved from Pascovale to Frankston. The woman they bought the house from told them that the Cananook Station was a safer place to park as opposed to the Frankston Station, Cananook was also slightly closer at 1.9 miles or 3.1 kilometers, whereas Frankston Station was like 2.5 miles or 4 kilometers from their house. Sarah purchased a 1978 red Honda Civic to get her to and from the Cananook Station, which she would then use to travel to her job as a finance clerk at CE Health Insurance Underwriters, which was in Melbourne's Central Business District. So on to the day in question. On July 11th, 1990, Sarah left her home on Sky Road at 7.20am and caught the 7.35 train from Cannanook Station. She worked at a building called Collins Place, which was located on Collins Street in Melbourne. At the end of the day, Sarah and her workmates, Mike Gerard, Diane Wright-Smith, and Gavin Thorne, left work together at 5 10 p.m. About four or five months prior, the group had started playing weekly tennis games every Wednesday. They all drove in Mike's car to the National Tennis Center at Flinders Park, which has since been renamed Melbourne Park. They arrived at 5:25 p.m. Just like every Wednesday, they played tennis for over an hour, then had some food and drinks at the Tennis Center Lounge. They remained at the lounge for two and a half hours. When they were done, Mike left from there in his own vehicle, while Sarah, Gavin, and Diane walked to the Richmond station, which was about 10 minutes away. The trio caught the 920 train to Caulfield and then transferred to the 939 p.m. train to Frankston. They got into the third and last car on the train, as it was the only one with lights on at the time. Diane and Gavin exited the train 16 stops later at Bond Beach Station at 10.15 p.m., and Sarah stayed on for the remaining two stops, exiting at the Kananook Station at 10.20 p.m. The train was scheduled at 10 p.m., but it arrived 20 minutes late, as trains tend to do. Sarah was seen by three separate witnesses walking from the train down the ramp towards the car park, or parking lot. She was wearing a green tracksuit and carrying a bag and tennis racket. Around 10.30 p.m., a witness named Maria, who had ridden the train with Sarah, said she heard a woman say, give me my keys back, followed by stop fooling around. Maria said, quote, the words I heard were in a firm but not yelling type voice. I couldn't see what was going on, when i looked over the bridge as it was dark and obscured by bush within a few seconds of hearing the female voice i heard a female scream it was cut off after a very short time for less than a second i stopped and looked everywhere the car park the station and the railway but couldn't see anyone now usually on a wednesday sarah arrives home between 10:30 and 10:40 p.m. So when she hadn't arrived by 11 p.m., her family was concerned. At first, they wondered if Sarah had simply missed her train. So at 1 a.m., Sarah's brother, Alistair, who had just turned 21 the week before, drove to the station to wait for the final train. The train arrived at 1.15 a.m., and Sarah was nowhere to be found. Alistair checked the car park and found Sarah's red Honda Civic. The doors and the boot, or trunk, were all locked, and there was no sign of Sarah or any of her belongings, so Alistair returned home. The McDermott's wondered if Sarah had chosen to stay at a friend's house overnight, but it would have been very out of character for her to not call first. The next morning, Sarah's mother, Sheila, called Sarah's work at 8.15 a.m. and and was told Sarah had not arrived. They said try again after 9, because that's when Sarah's workday officially started. Sheila called again at 8.40 and got the same response. Sheila called again at 9 and was informed that Sarah still hadn't arrived, so Sheila immediately called the police shortly after 9 a.m. Police checked the car park near Cananook Station at 2.10 p.m. on July 12th. They found Sarah's car and noticed a large amount of blood on the ground next to the driver's side door. There were small traces of blood from the car to a grass verge that bordered the parking lot. In the grass, police noticed two parallel lines, which appeared to be drag marks leading to an area of trees and bushes um, that was west of the car park. More blood was found leading to the bushes, and the grass was disturbed as though something had been compressing it down for a considerable time. Due to the amount of blood at this spot, it is believed that the body remained there for quite a while. I don't know what investigators' definition of quite a while is, but I'd speculate at least a couple of hours. But again, that's a speculation. To the right of the blood, police found a green cigarette lighter with the logo for Great Space Cafe, which was located in Collins Place, the same building where Sarah worked, Friends identified the lighter as one that Sarah had recently been using, and when the blood from the scene was tested, it was found to be a match to Sarah McDermott. Sarah's bag, tennis racket, and purse were not found at the scene. And the idea that Sarah may have been in that spot for hours when Alistair was at the station just hours later and wouldn't have been able to see her because of how dark it was, turns my stomach in a way that I can't fully describe. Yeah. On July 13th, Search and Rescue launched a massive search, including land, water, and air. More than 250 police and volunteers spent the next 21 days searching for Sarah. More than 5,000 pamphlets were handed out with information about the case. In the first week, police did a recreation with Gavin, Diane, and a model. Dressed in the same green tracksuit as Sarah, they rode the, st- the train late at night in the hopes of jogging the memory of some of the regular riders. They searched a one kilometer or 0.6 mile radius of the Cananook station. They checked bins, dumpsters, drains, creeks, bushland, and knocked on every door possible, but nothing concrete was ever found a $1 million reward has been offered for information on Sarah's case. At an inquest into Sarah's case in May 1996, investigators determined that Sarah likely met with foul play and was either killed at or near her car. However, since no body has ever been found, Sarah's exact cause of death has not been able to be determined. As of June 2022, Sarah McDermott has not been found, She was just 23 at the time of her disappearance. Sarah was described as feisty, witty, strong, and such a character. She loved music, especially Eurythmics and Wham, and participated in choir every year throughout school. Sarah was strong-willed, with a great sense of humor, and never took herself too seriously. And if this wasn't all devastating enough, Sarah's mother, Sheila, said, quote, After two weeks, I went back to my job as a community nurse to try and keep my mind off things. People didn't realize I actually wasn't coping. It was all a front. The only person who really helped me was a 90-year-old patient called Nell. When her daughters were 10 and 11, she'd sent them to play at the beach. They never came home and were later found murdered in the sand dunes. At least I knew where my girls were, she told me. Wow. What this family and the patient Nell, for that matter, have had to go through, is heartbreaking. In May 1991, the rest of the McDermott family made the tough decision to move from Frankston to Queensland. Sarah's father, Peter, said, quote, Strange things happened. We had stuff thrown in the front garden. Our car was graffitied. Plus, we kept wondering if Sarah had been put in the boot of a car, and we kept thinking, Is that the car? So we just had to move on. I can't even begin to imagine. Uh, But I think for me, one of the toughest stories that I have heard about Sarah's family is shortly after Sarah's disappearance, they adopted a golden lab puppy named Jenny, as they felt Jenny would be a beautiful way to welcome Sarah home. Jenny has since passed, and the idea that Sarah and Jenny never got to meet feels like such a blow to this family that they've already been through so much. Uh, On the 10th anniversary of Sarah's disappearance, a flame tree, or Royal Ponciana, was planted in the car park where Sarah was last seen. A memorial plaque was also placed at Cananook Station that read, Sarah McDermott, missing July 11th, 1990. Where are you, Sarah? We love you and miss you. Mom, Dad, and Al. In 2017, Peter and Sheila contacted the local council to ask if they could have that memorial stone, as they were getting older and found it difficult to make the journey to the station every year on the anniversary. The council agreed, gave them the memorial, and even replaced it with a new one that says, Sarah McDermott, a dear adored daughter and sister tragically taken from this location on the 11th of July 1990, loved always, never forgotten. And to that I say, good for them, For not only letting the parents have the original memorial, but also putting a new one in its place. It just feels like a lovely gesture. Yes. So we know that Sarah has never been found, and police strongly believe that Sarah was murdered on the night of her disappearance. So who could have been responsible Well, some claim to have seen a group of drunken males hanging around the car park on the night Sarah went missing. Unfortunately, there was no identifying information given about the men, so they have not been publicly identified. I also couldn't find anyone say what specific time or approximate time that they had seen these men. And while it's a possibility, investigators believe that whoever murdered Sarah was likely to be a serial killer or someone who had killed before. The fact that she was taken from the car park and that neither she nor her belongings have ever been found shows that either the suspect got incredibly lucky or they had done this sort of thing before. And I know what you're thinking. How many people fit into the category serial killer or has previously killed people before that could have been at Cananook Station, July 11th, 1990? And the answer is at least five that's the wild. first I know, uh, the first suspect is Jody Jones, a sex worker who was known to lead a group of people without housing who struggled with substance abuse issues. Investigators believe that Jody and three of her minions attacked Sarah in a late night robbery. On July twenty third, nineteen ninety, Jody was arrested and questioned at length about her involvement, but due to a lack of evidence, she was released. Jodi claimed that she was staying with a female friend on the night of Sarah's disappearance, but the friend later told investigators she couldn't actually remember if Jodi stayed with her that night or maybe the night after. But Jodi said, quote, I was there that night. There were police everywhere and I was pissed. But police weren't at the station until the day after Sarah went missing. So if Jodi did see police there, then it wasn't the same night that Jodi went missing. Sorry, that Sarah went missing. Jody allegedly told friends she murdered Sarah. However, her stories were never consistent, and it always ended with her asking her friends for money. For example, she'd say she was involved in the incident, and now she needed money to skip town. Right. Or she needed money to go find somewhere safe to stay until, like, the heat dies down. Jody also claimed that she was with two specific men, but none of her friends knew the men she was talking about, and Jody would often change the names of the men, so I don't know how much we can trust Jody's accuracy on that. While staying with a friend, Jody confessed to that friend that she was involved. The friend's 11-year-old daughter overheard the conversation and told police she heard Jody say, quote, You know that murder up at Cananook Station? I was there with two other blokes, and I'm worried because I don't know how staunch they are.
1: Interesting, the,
2: the girl said quote, "I could hear Jody say that she was in deep shit because she was in the, she was in the Cananook murder and that there were two other guys with her, and she didn't know whether they would lag on her. I heard Mum tell her she didn't want any trouble, and Jody asked for a hundred dollars that Mum owed her because she wanted to go interstate, and Mum said she didn't have the money and let me say the fact that this child at just eleven years old, overheard this and went. You know what? I'm going to the police. Good honor.
1: <laughs> yes, good better than her you. mother.
2: <laughs> good for you. Uh, multiple friends of Jody's told the police that Jody had confessed to them that she killed Sarah on December 9th, nineteen ninety. In a sworn statement to police, one friend even claimed she witnessed it saying, quote, as the train pulled away, I saw Jody and these two males follow a girl who was dressed in sporting gear. I watched these people for a while and I saw Jody and the two males start belting into that girl near the driver's side of the do- driver's side door of the car. The friend continued, quote, I heard a female voice scream as she was being attacked. Jody came screaming out from behind the car and the two males were following her. Jodi was hysterical, and I ran towards her. I then saw blood on Jodi's clothes. Jodi was screaming, she's dead, she's dead. I have not seen Jodi since this happened. Uh, Leanne, who met Jodi in prison, claims Jodi confessed to killing Sarah, and that police would never charge her because they'd never find the body. So was Jodi really involved? Or was she just claiming to be involved to give herself some sort of street cred? According to a private investigator, a witness told police that they saw Jodi and two men follow a girl matching Sarah's description at the car park. But after receiving a threatening letter to keep quiet, the witness retracted her statement. Mm. And I am not going to dismiss Jodi as a suspect, uh, because is she capable of participating in a murder? Well, by the time she was 25, Jody had been to court 17 times for 45 different offenses, including burglary, prostitution, drugs, and manslaughter. On February 22, 1983, in St. Kilda, Australia, 18 year old Jody, along with 16 year old Donald Roy Collins, 17 year old Wayne Paul Hogan, and 17 year old Russell Smith, attacked and killed. 46-year-old James Halkett. Unfortunately, I could find nothing about this attack, but I know that Jody stabbed James with her stiletto heels. In court, Jody said she jumped off a wall in her heels and landed on James' chest, but I couldn't find if she was admitting it was done on purpose or if she cl- was claiming it was some sort of an accident. Right. Right. All four pleaded guilty to the charge of manslaughter in April 1984 and were sentenced to 12 years with a minimum of 10 years. But somehow, Jody was granted parole in August 1989 and was sent back to prison in October after her parole was revoked and then was officially released in February 1990. I do not know what happened to the three men who she was sentenced with, were they the same men that were seen and as part of Jody's gang when Sarah disappeared? I could speculate, but I'm not certain. On September 24th, 1991, Jody partied with some friends at a room at the Esquire Motel in St Kilda, Australia. Alcohol and hard drugs were involved. Jody collapsed around 2 a.m. and, despite an ambulance coming to the scene, she could not be revived. Police say there were no suspicious circumstances involved and that Jody's cause of death was determined to be a heroin overdose. Jody was just 26. Allegedly, two other members of Jody's crew have since died. One person remains alive. Investigators said they don't believe the person participated in Sarah's death, but they believe that this person may have helped dispose of Sarah's body it's possible this crew were the same three men who were charged with manslaughter in 1984 but again i don't know for sure um i mean i mean i mean i have a lot of feelings about it i'm the the problem with this is every suspect that comes up in this is like oh i could see it and then you're like oh maybe not but like all of them yeah and it's frustrating and i just want answers i get that uh, but the second suspect in the disappearance of Sarah McDermott is serial killer Bandali Debs. Now, in the 90s, the Victoria Police Armed Robbery Squad had an investigation that they called Operation Hamada. The operation involved a series of armed robberies that were committed in at least 10 restaurants over the period of seven years, starting in February, 1991. On August 15, 1998, Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller were asked to assist Operation Hamada and stake out a Korean barbecue restaurant called Silky Emperor. They believed it was a potential target. So at 11 p.m., Gary and Rodney parked their unmarked police car in an underground parking garage next to the restaurant. At 12.08 a.m., a a dark-colored Hyundai XL hatchback drove in and out of the garage, causing Gary and Rodney to follow them. They pulled the vehicle over, and Rodney got out to speak with the driver while Gary went around to speak with the passenger. The driver pulled out a revolver and shot through the window, hitting Gary in the chest and pelvis. Rodney pulled out his service revolver and was shot before he could fire. The driver then got out of the car, walked over to Gary, and shot him in the head. Rodney was taken to hospital where he died from his injuries at 4.39 a.m., Gary Silk was 34 at the time of his death, and Rodney Miller was 35. Bullets from the victims were tested and found to be from two separate weapons, so they knew two shooters were involved. The ballistics also matched bullets that were recovered from the armed robberies that Operation Hamada was investigating pieces of window glass from the car driven by the killers was found at the scene and analyzed the glass was a match to a late model Hyundai hatchback police then searched for owners of vehicles matching that description and found the owner of or that one of the owners was the daughter of known criminal Bandoli Debs
1: ooh
2: so 45 year old Debs and his daughter's boyfriend 17 year old Jason Joseph Roberts, were arrested September 24th, 2001. They were charged with the murders of Gary Silk and Rodney Miller, as well as 13 charges of armed robbery relating to the crimes from Operation Hamada. Both were found guilty and sentenced to two consecutive life terms with a minimum of 35 years. In May 2007, while serving time, Debs was convicted of the murder of 18-year-old Christy Mary Hardy, on June 17, 1997, Christian Debs allegedly had consensual sex before he shot her in the back of the head at Upper Beaconsfield, Victoria. Years later, the DNA found at the scene matched to Debs, and he was sentenced to a third consecutive life sentence. Then in December 2011, Debs was convicted of the murder of 34-year-old Donna Ann Hicks, On April 21, 1995, Donna was last seen drinking at the Colleyton Hotel in Western Sydney before getting into a vehicle that matched a car owned by Debs. Donna's body was found the next day near the entrance to a quarry. She had been shot in the face at close range. DNA came back as a match to Ben Dolly Debs. He was given a fourth consecutive life sentence. In May 2014, Sarah's brother Alistair wrote an open letter to Debs asking for him to confess as Alistair believed that Debs knew something about Sarah's disappearance. Debs has not publicly responded to it, and while Debs is capable of murder, there has not been any evidence found linking Debs to Sarah McDermid or to the area surrounding Canaanook Station. I'm not saying it's not possible. I mean, obviously, Sarah's brother believes... For whatever reason that this man is involved, Um, there's just no, there has not been anything that places Debs at the scene of the crime at the time. Don't get me wrong, he's a piece of shit person that has killed multiple people. So it's more than possible. Uh, In November 2020, Deb's partner Roberts was given a retrial based on the belief that members of the Victoria Police may have tampered with evidence. The new trial was set to start in March 2022, but when two jurors became sick, the trial was postponed. As of right now, it is currently... we're waiting on it. I think it's maybe just starting, but... Ugh, they both killed people. It's... I can't. Yeah. So, again, is he possible? Could he have been in the area at the time? Of course. Is he capable of murder? He's proven that he is. But, and for some reason, Sarah's brother truly believes it for who knows what reason, because there are so many options of serial killer out there, which is surprising. Uh, The third potential suspect in the disappearance of Sarah McDermott is serial killer Ashley Colston. Bit of background on him, April 19th, 1971, when Colston was just 14 years old, he abducted two teachers while armed with a twenty-two rifle. Jesus. He then forced 20-year-old Helinka Watson and 21-year-old Carol Scott into a car where he made them drive towards Sydney. During the drive, the women convinced Colston to stop for food at at a roadside cafe in Gundagai, while there, the woman, the women managed to escape and Culston was arrested. He spent three months in a juvenile facility where he allegedly told a fellow, uh, would you call it, inmate, uh, that he fantasized about abducting women and raping them in caves. Jesus. Which is horrifying for anyone to say, let alone a 14-year-old boy. Uh, then... Weird slight life switch. In 1988, Coulston custom built an eight foot micro yacht that he named G'day 88. His hope was to sail across the Tasman Sea from Australia to New Zealand. And this is bringing Peter Madsen vibes. I was just going to say. Kimball episode. Uh, Coulston set sail January 26, 1988 from Port Stevens, just north of Sydney. On March 12, he activated the boat's emergency beacon. He was rescued 46 days later by a passing tanker just north of North Island. Even though Coulston had technically sailed the Tasman Sea, it didn't officially count because his vessel didn't reach land. So Coulston set sail once again on October 25th, 1988, this time traveling from New Zealand to Australia. He successfully arrived in Brisbane on January 6, 1989. Between both trips, Culston spent 111 days on board the vessel and traveled 4,280 miles or 6,887 kilometers. And that seems fairly light and innocent. And then you skip ahead three years. Karen Henstridge and Anne Smurden, both 22 years old, posted an ad looking for someone to share their flat in Burwood. On July 29, 1992, they were waiting for a pot- the potential housemate who answered their ad to arrive. Anne's brother-in-law, 27-year-old Peter Dempsey, was also at the house that day, as he was in town for a training course. Shortly after entering the house, the would-be housemate tied Karen, Anne, and Peter up with cable ties gagged them, and shot them each in the back of the head with a sawed-off 22 rifle. The weapon was fitted with a homemade silencer that was made from a car oil filter, which is horrifying. Uh, Nothing was taken from the scene, so robbery was not a motive, and since this was prior to DNA analysis, the main thing the police had to go on was fingerprints. But the killer's fingerprints weren't in the system, so they were at a loss. Four weeks later... On September 1st, around 8.45 p.m., a man approached a husband and wife getting into their car on Government House Drive just off St. Kilda Road. The man was wearing a balaclava and was armed with a sawed-off 22 rifle. The couple offered the man cash, which he took, before tying the woman's hands. While he was busy, the husband grabbed the killer, threw the gun, and told his wife to run two security guards heard the noise and managed to catch the attacker. When bullets were compared, police found the bullets from the attacker's gun matched the bullets from the Burwood crime scene in July. 58-year-old Ashley Colston was found guilty and was later named a suspect in a series of rapes in the late 1970s and early 80s, uh, which were perpetrated by a man named the Balaclava Killer. From what I can tell, Culston's DNA has not officially been compared to the Clava case yet, for reasons I don't know. Interesting. Uh, Culston was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 30 years, plus an additional seven years for other offenses. A psychologist and psychiatrist, both working for the defense, said they found no psychological disturbance or personality disorder whatsoever with Culston. And to me, that's terrifying, because if you're working for the defense, wouldn't you really want to find something that you could use as he wasn't right in the head? It's not his fault. Whereas they're like, no, completely normal dude. My like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but similar to Bandali Debs, there is no evidence that officially links Ashley Colston to the disappearance of Sarah McDermott. But since we don't know Colston's exact whereabouts in July 1990, and we've seen what he's capable of, he is definitely a suspect. Because again, in a case where no one knows for sure, we are going to look at every possible angle. It's what we do. It's what we do.
1: It's what we do. Well, listen, I'm riveted. I, uh, uh, I, we are going to need to take a break because my pen died and I cannot not take notes. So everybody grab a drink, hit the can, grab a fresh pen, and we'll be right back to discuss more about the case of Sarah McDermid on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs.
0: Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're talking about the case of Sarah McDermott. Uh, before the break, my pen ran out. I've refilled. And because I care about the environment, I have uh, put a refill in, literally, L uh, ink refill in my pen. Uh, nerd. And also, I've gotten myself a fresh Gatorade. That's Gatorade number three, folks, for those keeping track at home. And no, this hangover is not breaking. Uh, and I think that's because I'm still drunk.
2: What we got next? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if nothing else, your hangover was from, like, a happy celebration. It was! So, yes, that's something. Beautiful. Also, I. this is the day I learned that you could get Refills for pens.
1: Oh, yeah. I love these pens. Uh
2: This is a sponsor I'd like. (laughs) Ah. Yeah. Oh, you think I don't want some sort of office supply person to come in and sponsor us? Stop it. Yeah. Come on. I mean. Let us know. Let
1: us know. (laughs) Staples.
2: Let us know. Let us know. Let us know. Come on now. So, we've talked about three possibilities. Now, we're on to number four. All righty. The fourth potential suspect in Sarah's disappearance. Another serial killer. Wow. Because there was a lot, potentially, in the area. uh, And that would be Paula Denya. Now, before I go any further, I want to say that while in prison in 2003... Paula adopted she/her pronouns, according to the case file podcast "Searching for Sarah" and author Vicky Petratus. They believe that as of 2021, Danya no longer identifies that way and is using he/him pronouns. But since Denya has not poti- like stated a public uh, statement saying this potential change herself. I'm going to stick with the she, her pronouns, as that is what she had last publicly stated. I think that makes sense. Uh, On the night of June 11th, 1993, Elizabeth Stevens was last seen getting off a bus at Cranbourne Road. The weather was bad. It was pouring rain. Elizabeth normally arrived home by 8 p.m., so when she didn't arrive by 10, her uncle went out to look for her. When he had no luck, the uncle reported Elizabeth missing at 1 a.m. Unfortunately, due to bad weather, nothing could be done. The next morning, Elizabeth's body was found in Lord Lloyd Park Reserve, just 4.3 kilometers or 2.7 miles from where she was last seen. She had been stabbed, strangled, and her throat and chest had been slashed. Elizabeth was just 18 years old. Oof. Almost a month later, on July 8th, 41-year-old Raza Toth left the Seaford railway station and walked along Railway Parade. Around 5.50 p.m., she walked past the Seaford North Reserve, where she was attacked. Raza was dragged to the park, where her attacker held a gun to her head. Raza managed to break free and get back to the road, where she stopped a vehicle whose driver took her home. Around 7 p.m. that same night, Debbie Freem left her home in Seaford to run to the store for some milk. While she was out, Debbie was abducted in her car. Her body was found days later on July 12th in a paddock on Taylor's Road, Carom Downs, about 10 kilometers or six miles away. Similar to Elizabeth, Debbie had been strangled and her body had been slashed. She was 22 and had just given birth to her son 12 days prior. The son was left with a friend while Debbie had run her errand. Uh, Just weeks later, on July 30th, Natalie Russell left John Paul College and was walking her usual shortcut home through a fenced walkway near Sky Road. That particular trail has since been named Nat's Track in her honor. When Natalie didn't arrive home by the usual time, she was reported missing at 8 p.m. Police found that Natalie had been dragged from the walkway through a hole in the fence to a series of bushes. She had been strangled, and her body had been violently slashed. Natalie was just 17 at the time of her death. She was described as intelligent, happy, and vibrant. Because Natalie fought her attacker so hard, police were able to get DNA from the scene. They also had a description from Raza uh, that Raza had given police of her attacker. She said 18 to 20 years old, about 180 centimeters or 5 foot 9, with a round face and blue eyes. Police also had a witness, a postal worker, who claimed to have seen a rusted yellow Toyota Corona without plates parked near the walkway around 2.30 p.m. that day. The witness also noticed a person in the vehicle using binoculars, which the witness felt was suspicious. Um, Yeah, yes. The car was traced and found to be owned by Paula Denya. When investigators arrived at Denya's home, she admitted she was in the area at the time of Debbie's and Natalie's murders, so Denya was taken to the Frankston Police station at 9:20 p.m on July 31st. At the time Denya had scratches on her fingers and a long cut on the inside middle finger of her left hand. She couldn't explain to police how she got them and said it was likely from when she was working on her car, which is a flimsy excuse at best yeah. Uh, Denya then spent hours denying any involvement in any crimes, But when police asked for a DNA sample, Denya knew that she was caught. On August 1st, Denya admitted to the murders of Elizabeth Stevens, Debbie Freem, and Natalie Russell, as well as to the attempted abduction of Rasa Toth, and to a break-in that we haven't discussed yet, but we'll get into shortly. Uh, She also admitted to police that she had been, quote, stalking women for a few years in Frankston since I was 17. When a detective asked, just waiting for the opportunity, Danya responded, quote, waiting for the sign, which is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, Danya admitted that she had a desire to kill since she was about 14 years old, and she had a general, quote, hatred of girls and women denya also recorded video for police going to the crime scenes with police walking them through exactly how each crime occurred for example she told police um, that she came across debbie freem debbie's car was unlocked outside the store so while debbie was inside denya snuck into debbie's back seat and when debbie got to the car denya threatened debbie with a gun and told her to drive A witness later recalled seeing a gray Nissan Pulsar uh, driving erratically, flashing its high beams. The car, which belonged to Debbie, was found the day after her disappearance near Madden Street, which was less than three kilometers or less than two miles from where Debbie's body would eventually be found. Inside the car, police found traces of Debbie's blood. There was also a new dent on the front of the car. Danya also admitted that less than an hour after brutally murdering Elizabeth, Danya went to her girlfriend's mother's house. She arrived soaking wet as it had been storming that night, but she claimed she went to visit her mother, who didn't end up being home. Danya then sat down and had a lovely dinner of soup and roast.
1: Oh my God,
2: just sitting down to a meal an hour after brutally murdering somebody is i-I can't. Um, I can't imagine murdering anybody at all, but to murder them and then just go home and eat is, I can't, uh, Denya was convicted in 1995 during her jail time in November, 2003. Denya began going by the she, her pronouns saying, quote, I committed these disgusting crimes, not because I ever hated womankind, but because I never really felt that I was male. Then 2004, Denya claimed that the reason she killed Elizabeth, Debbie, and Natalie was because her older brother David had sexually abused her when she was a child. She said she only murdered these women because her own life had been taken by her brother. And while this feels like Denya's way of trying to gain sympathy or potentially an early release, I am always one that is quick to believe victims, of course— if this is true of what happened to her in her youth, I hope that her brother faces consequences if he is guilty. Even if it is true, that did not give Denya the right to do what she did to those women.
1: No, of course. I should
2: also point out, to the best of my knowledge, none of the none of Denya's victims were sexually assaulted in any way. Uh, but while we're talking about Denya's childhood... Let's look a little further into it. Paula Denya was born in April 1972 in the middle uh, of the Denya siblings. David was born in 1963, followed by Steve in 1971, Richard in 1974, and twins Anthony and Natalie in 1976. According to her mother, when Denya was a baby, she rolled off a bench and banged her head. Here we go. I don't know how bad the injury was, but it made me think of Lauren's research on frontal lobe injuries in the Richard Ramirez section of our Elisa Lamb episode. Denya struggled academically right from the start and became known as a troublemaker. She was overweight and taller than kids her age, so she was often bullied. Denya's former sixth-grade teacher still remembers a time when the class was returning from phys-ed. And the first kid back to class was chewing on the end of a pen. Denya walked past this boy. He made some sort of derogatory comment towards her. So she slapped this kid in the face so hard that the pen got lodged in the boy's throat. The boy was taken to hospital. It was found the pen missed his windpipe by just millimeters. Oh,
1: my God.
2: Denya shrugged off the incident and didn't seem bothered about it in any way. Then when Denya was 10, one of her brothers found the family cat hanging dead from a tree. Mm -hmm. Its throat had been cut. Denya told her brother, oh, one of the neighbors must have done it. But then the brother asked to see Denya's knife and found it was covered in blood and fur.
1: My god. And
2: while this is horrifying to hear, I want you to know that I have left out some very graphic specific details about that incident that I'm just going to not uh that is my cross to bear. Oh,
1: I'm <laughs> and so I'm not sorry.
2: going to share it because it's not necessary to the story. Uh 2 years later, when Denya's younger sister was given two stuffed care bears, Denya cut the bears' throats and pulled out most of the stuffing. Uh when asked about it, Denya showed Zero emotion. Then less than a week before her 13th birthday, Danya was charged with theft of a motor vehicle and just two months later charged with theft as well as willful damage and making a false report to the fire brigade. In September 1987, 15-year-old Denya was charged with assault after she forced another teenager to masturbate in front of some children. Oh, my God. Yeah. This, yep, I don't even have words for it. Uh, Denya went through seven jobs, but was fired from each one for laziness or dishonesty. Although according to author Vicky Petratus, there was one time when Denya was fired from the Safeway in Keringal Hub in Frankston for, quote, ramming a customer with a stack of empty shopping trolleys. Oh my god. Yeah. In early 1993, Denya applied to join the police force, but she was rejected after failing the physical. Those around her at the time said, she didn't really seem disappointed at all. Then in February 1993, Denia got a job at a boat building company in Seaford called Pro Marine. She only lasted there a couple of months as she seemed to do anything but what she was actually hired to do. During her time at Pro Marine, Denya used a welding torch to melt the soles of her shoes. I assume that was to make her footwear unrecognizable at a crime scene. And yes, while that does do- make it so that police can't determine the type of shoe, once you're caught, it is a dead giveaway. A <laughs> great point. So I am surprised by that. Uh, While working at Pro-Marine, Denya also spent a lot of her time making weapons, such as the various knives she would later use uh, in her attacks, as well as a glove gun. What is a glove gun, you ask? Apparently, it's a rubber glove connected to aluminum pipe loaded with a ball bearing, and when you pull the finger back, the bearing is released like a slingshot. Wow. Yeah, I just love that this kind of thing is so easily homemade.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, on February
2: 19th, 1993, Denya broke into the home of Donna Vane in the hopes of killing Donna. Unfortunate, or sorry, rather fortunately for Donna, she wasn't home. So instead, Denya took out her frustrations and slashed photos in Donna's apartment, cutting the throats of any women in the photos. Danya slashed furniture, walls, clothing, as well as killed Donna's cat and two kittens and used their blood to write, Donna, you're dead, on the wall. Oh my god. Female pornographic images were also left at the scene. Prior to the incident, Donna had received numerous prank calls that she found really disturbing, so she refused to stay home alone. So, if Danya was responsible for the phone calls, then it was Danya who drove Donna out of the house. So, that was an interesting yeah. turn. Uh, in April 1993, Danya celebrated her 21st birthday with family, and just a month later, she stalked and murdered Elizabeth Stevens. Police believe that Danya likely stalked Elizabeth for two weeks prior to her murder. Were Danya's attacks random? Author Victor Vicka, v- huh, so sorry. Author Vicky Petratus believes that each of Denya's four victims may have been specifically targeted. Elizabeth was living in a house that used to belong to the family of a girl that Denya's brother Richard had dated, which is a weird connection. And apparently Denya had been in that house before. Mm. Uh, Raza was a similar age and build to Denya's mother. Debbie was a young mother, like Denya's sister-in-law. And Denya's third victim was 17-year-old Natalie, who had the same first name as Denya's sister, who was also 17 at the time of the attack. Good God! So is it possible that Denya chose these women for specific reasons or because they were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time? During her first police interview, Denya was asked why those specific people were chosen, to which Denya said, quote, I hate women. A detective said, why those women? And Denya replied, quote, just had a feeling. Psychologists who spoke with Denya believe the victims were chosen randomly, and this proved Denya's, quote, single-minded desire to kill. Based on that and the fact that Denya had no emotion whatsoever regarding her crimes, she was diagnosed with sadistic personality disorder. Yeah. 21-year-old Denya was convicted on three counts of murder and one count of abduction. She pleaded guilty to all four counts and even admitted to the incident at Donna Vane's apartment. On December 20th, 1993, Danya was sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. Danya appealed, <coughs> so sorry, in July 1994. And while the consecutive life term sentence remained, the possibility of parole was changed from non existent to after a period of 30 years. What?
1: Why? This person committed to these crimes and will kill again. I guarantee we'll kill again.
2: Well, great news. Danya's up for parole in 2023. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of questions, but, you know, I don't know what to do with it. Wow. So, regarding the disappearance of Sarah McDermott, Danya has denied any involvement, saying, quote, I'd tell you if it was me. I've always admitted what I have done. And that's true. Dania did confess to the three murders, but it was only after spending hours denying that she was involved and then only admitting to being involved when they were like, well, we we need your DNA. And knowing she was caught, then she admitted to it. But since there's no DNA or evidence in Sarah's case, the only way Denya could be currently linked to the case would be if she outright confessed. So if she was involved, it makes sense that Denya would not admit to it. But we can't overlook the similarities in Denya's crimes to what happened to Sarah. All three of Denya's known victims were taken from the street and moved to another location, just like Sarah, Two of them outright were known to be dragged, and there were drag marks at Sarah's crime scene. Uh, all three involved a knife, and with the amount of blood at Cananook car park, it's safe to assume that a knife may have been involved in Sarah's case as well. Uh, Sarah was taken July 11th, and Denya's first known attack was June 11th. Is the date of the 11th significant in some way? I am grasping at straws here, just trying to figure all of this out. During her police interview, police asked, quote, Are you aware that there was a woman who was taken from the Kananook Railway Station in 1990? Denya quickly replied, quote, I didn't do that, not Sarah McDermott. Which is interesting, because, again, this was three years later. And the fact that Denya remembered Sarah's full name is interesting to me. Uh, So was Denya involved in Sarah's disappearance, or was Sarah's disappearance possibly something that inspired Denya to commit her crimes? Something worth noting, Debbie Freem was abducted just 500 meters from the Kananook Station, and Natalie Russell was taken from less than a kilometer away. At the time of Sarah's disappearance, Denya lived less than 300 meters from Kananook Station. Oh, boy. But her four, un- her four known crimes, the three murders and one abduction, were all committed in the span of seven weeks. So why wait three years before attacking again to attack then three times so quickly? Is it possible there is a string of victims between Sarah and Elizabeth's deaths that we don't know about? It's possible. Uh, Denya was just 18 at the time of Sarah's disappearance. And while she admitted to police, she had the urge to kill since she was 14. The idea that she could have attacked Sarah and left no evidence at that age seems unlikely, especially if it was a first attack. But who knows how many victims Denya had both before and after Sarah. We know at the time of of Sarah's disappearance, Denya was physically, mentally, and emotionally capable of committing the crime. So for now, until we have official answers, Paula Denia remains a suspect. Yes. Specifically for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, the way I made that sound felt like I was talking police, but I was like, no, in this case, I'm the police that I'm referring to.
1: <laughs> You're always the police to me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's what we do. You're the profiler. Yep.
1: Exactly. You're Um, the detective.
2: (laughs) That doesn't want to run. Probably shouldn't handle a weapon. But we'll sit at my desk and guzzle Tums. I have one too many Slurpees to keep me up to go through all this. We got our scumbag! Yep. hundred percent. So now, we have come to the fifth potential suspect in Sarah's disappearance. This time the suspect's identity is unknown. And while these cases happened a decade before Sarah went missing, I think they're important to bring up as they happened in the same area. These cases are known as the Tainong, North, and Frankston murders. Um, It involves six murders that occurred between May 1980 and October 1981. After experiencing trouble with her car, 59-year-old Allison Rook told a neighbor she was planning to go get some groceries and pay bills. But on May 30th, 1980, while waiting for the bus along Frankston-Dandenong Road, Allison disappeared around 11 a.m. Five weeks later on July 5th, a man out walking his dogs found Allison's naked body in a shallow grave, nearly 13 kilometers or eight miles away on McClellan Drive cause of death was unknown on august 10th 1980 73-year-old bertha miller went missing while waiting for a bus in glen iris then on october 28th 14-year-old Catherine headland disappeared while walking to a bus stop at 11:20 a.m. on october 6th 18-year-old anne marie Sargent went missing while walking to her mother's house from her mother's house to an office in dandenong on December 6, 1980, some men at a sand quarry near Tainong North discovered the skeletal remains of Bertha, Catherine, and Anne-Marie. Bertha was fully clothed. The other two victims were both naked. Cause of death could not be determined in any case. On November thirtieth, 1980, a week before the three bodies were found, 34-year-old Nauru Mall Stevenson, went missing around dawn from Brunswick, Victoria. Her remains were found in Scrubland uh, in Tainong North, February 3rd, 1983. Then on October 9th, 1981, around 1.20pm, 1 55-year-old Joyce Summers disappeared while waiting for a bus along frankston Nung Road. Six weeks later, on November 22nd, Joy's naked body was found in some bushes by a man collecting firewood near McClellan Drive and Sky Road. This was a short distance from where Allison Rook was found. Weird synchronicity, <laughs> or meaningful coincidence, if you will. But not only is November 22nd my birthday, we're talking 1981, so that was the actual day of my birth, which is unsettling. But you, you also
1: know. mentioned February 3rd, 1983, and I had just thought to myself, oh, the day before my actual birthday. It's
2: it's yeah, yeah. I don't like it. No.
1: Nope.
2: But uh, of course, it is it's possible that these six cases aren't all connected. When investigators did an inquiry into the cases in 1985, they believed they were looking for three different suspects. But in a 2017 inquiry, investigators announced they believed one person was responsible for all six deaths. Now, in five of the six cases, the victims were abducted from similar areas, whereas uh, Narumal was taken from outside the area, but her body was found in a similar area to the other's which suggests probably the same killer. And five of the six bodies were hidden fairly well. Again, though, Narumal's body was barely covered and just off the main road. But is it possible her killer was almost caught, so they just didn't have time to cover the body and they left quickly? I mean, it's also possible that it was deliberate because the killer was also racist, as Naurumal was originally from Thailand, and the remaining five uh, victims were Caucasian. It's possible. Uh, The reason that I'm convinced all six were killed by one person is because each woman was abducted either walking or near public transportation, and each victim was stripped of their personal belongings. I'm, of course, speculating, but it's just the fact that they all went missing from, like, it was that same, very specific street that makes me feel like it's one person. Uh, Police have three potential suspects in the Tainong North and Frankston murder case. The first is rapist and serial killer Raymond Edmonds, again with the serial killers. Um, Edmonds was also known as Mr. Stinky and the Donvale rapist. Edmonds can committed a series of violent sexual crimes against women, as well as multiple murders between February 1966 and the early 80s. His victims ranged in age from 14 to 51. The nickname Mr. Stinky came from the fact that some of his victims said he smelled like an offensive combination of chemicals, milk, and manure. Oh. I know. And honestly, a lot of his attacks were were in the Melbourne area, which isn't far from where the Tainong North and Frankston murders took place. He was living in New South Wales at the time of these particular attacks, which is further away, so I can see why police saw him as a suspect, but also aren't committed to him or fully convinced that he did it. Uh, Police also admitted They felt that Edmonds lacked the charm and interpersonal skills that would have been required to get each woman into the vehicle without a struggle. Um, In 1986, Edmonds was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and in 2019... After a cold case investigation, Edmonds was charged with 31 offenses relating to multiple cold cases. He was sentenced to an additional 23 years. Police believe he may be responsible for as many as 32 rapes and several unsolved murders. Oh my god. So, he's possible. But also, who's the police's second suspect? Well, it's the person I happen to say as our earlier second suspect, Bandali Debs. Police thought Debs was likely suspect because he had a history of sexual violence in the area. And Don, or Debbie Hicks, one of his victims was found naked near a quarry. And at least three of the bodies from the Tainong North murders were found in a quarry. Two of them were naked um, but I wouldn't be surprised if Debs was responsible. A judge once described him as, quote, lacking humanity. Um, the third suspect, and I understand why this was the police's like main suspect in this, is a man named Harold Janman. Janman had no history of violent crimes. In fact, the only thing on his record was, were a few incidents where Janman solicited sex workers. Janman became a person of interest in the Tainong North murders because he, quote, often offered women lifts on the Frankston-Dandenong Road. Which is an odd thing, but so is the fact that Janman had been living in the Frankston area for more than a decade And yet he didn't start offering strangers rides until 1980 when the attacks started. During the attacks, Janman lived in Frankston area. But prior to that, he lived in Garfield, which is just eight kilometers or five miles from Tainong North. He also worked at the quarry where multiple victims were found. Oh, boy. Janman was interviewed by police on December 3rd, 1981, where he claimed he was at the bank in Frankston with his wife on the day that Joyce Summers disappeared. Janman's wife even corroborated the alibi. However, according to Janman's bank records, he wasn't at the bank that day. In a police report in 1990, Janman was described as, quote, a viable suspect with weak or non-existent alibis. He also failed not one, but two polygraph tests. But whatever evidence the police may or may not have had on Janman, it was circumstantial and he was never officially charged. In a 2017 interview, Janman said, quote, I hope they find the true person that's responsible. <clears throat> Janman maintained his innocence right up until his death in August 2020 at the age of 88. As of June 2022, police have made no arrests in any of these cases, and sadly, the cases of Alison Rook, Bertha Miller, Catherine Headland, Anne-Marie Sargent, Narumal Stevenson, and Joyce Summers all remain unsolved. Police have since offered a $6 million reward for information on this case. So again, I know they, it was a different time frame, but it was so close to the area is it possible that someone killed these women and then took a break or moved somewhere to kill again and then potentially moved back? You never know.
1: Yes. And that the killers do, do take breaks. Serious, some serial See, killers. yeah. Well,
2: now, I know that I said I only had five suspects, but I've thought of a potential sixth one. Okay. What if again with the serial killers but what if Sarah's disappearance was linked to another serial killer but one the investigators don't know about i now in advance i know these cases aren't aren't exactly similar but just run with me on this so while researching Sarah's case i came across two other cases that based on location and time frame i'm wondering could either of them or potentially both be connected to Sarah's disappearance in some way? Is it a bit of a leap? Sure. But again, no stone unturned. That's what we do on this show. Yes. So, Melinda Freeman, her husband, and their infant son returned to their home in Whittlesea, Victoria, around 4 p.m. on October 4th, 1991. Soon after, The husband took the son out so that Melinda could have peace and quiet while studying for her future cosmetology career. When her husband returned home around 1130, he found the front door open, the house had been ransacked, and Melinda had been viciously beaten to death. She was just 27 years old. And I know serial killers usually have one specific M.O., but what if someone attacked Melinda and Sarah because both were a crime of opportunity? Whittlesea is about 84 kilometers or 52 miles north of Frankston, where Sarah lived, and the attack attacks happened 15 months apart. And I know it feels like a giant leap, but in a world of anything is possible. It could be possible that they were attacked by the same person. Police received an anonymous tip about Melinda's death in 2018. They have not publicly stated what the tip was, but they have since asked For the person to contact them again. I will also say um, visually Sarah and Melinda are very similar in petite curly haired blonde women. So it just feels very like, well, if the killer took Sarah and then realized they were kind of into it, it would not surprise me if they came across a woman of similar attributes yeah. they might go yeah i'm gonna you know in february 2022 police announced a one million dollar reward for information on melinda's case but as of june 2022 melinda's case remains unsolved and then there's the case of michelle brown on march 1st 1992 a friend drove michelle from her home in baxter to another friend's home in frankston Baxter is like 6.4 kilometers or four miles south of Frankston. Michelle stayed at her at the friend's home until 7 p.m. when Michelle and a female friend walked to the Food Plus store on Frankston Dandenong. The trip took about five minutes. While there, Michelle called home, asking for her mother to pick her up at the Frankston railway station. Michelle's friend returned home, and Michelle was seen walking away from Food Plus between 7 and 7.15 p.m. It is believed she was heading to the Frankston Station, which was less than four kilometers or two and a half miles away. It is not known if Michelle made it to the station or not, but a taxi driver saw a woman who matched Michelle's description near the phone boxes at the Frankston Station between 8 and 9 p.m. A witness who lived on Plain Street which is only a few hundred meters south of the station, reported hearing two separate screams shortly after 9 p.m. Michelle's parents said it wasn't uncommon for them to go days without seeing Michelle, so they weren't concerned about her disappearance right away. Which I find weird, since Michelle called home, specifically asking for a ride, and her mother says she went to the station looking for her daughter and her daughter wasn't there. And that didn't alarm her? Apparently not, Uh but yeah. Either way, Michelle was last seen March first, and her parents didn't report her missing until March thirteenth. That's on March That's a long time. It's it's a chunk of time, yeah. On March 14th, Michelle's body was found in an old shed behind a gun shop on Plain Street. The shed was about four hundred meters from the Frankston station. Michelle was just twenty five. There is no word as to how she died. In 2013, police were convinced they knew who Michelle's killer was, but never announced it publicly. As of June 2022, Michelle's case remains unsolved. So Michelle was potentially taken from a railway station, which happened to be near the Cananook station where Sarah was last seen. And Sarah and Michelle were close in age, 23 and 25, respectively, and yes, their disappearances were 20 months apart, but I think it's more than possible the cases could be connected, or maybe one of the suspects that I listed earlier, like Jody Jones or Paula Denia, were responsible for what happened to Michelle. And maybe these cases aren't connected, and one of the killers took Michelle's life and not Sarah's. It's of course. Possible that Sarah McDermott's disappearance was caused by someone who wasn't a serial killer. But the fact it was covered up as well as it was makes me think otherwise. Yes, her blood was found at the scene, but her body has been missing for more than 30 years. It's also possible the killer just got lucky and there wasn't anyone there at the time. Uh, One of the psychics—yeah, I said psychics— that worked with the case believed that Sarah's body was buried at a tip or landfill. I also think this case has made me go, I would one day talk to a psychic because I am so quick to believe.
1: I got, I got somebody for
2: you. I bet. Uh, It is believed that the area of the tip or landfill was never searched during the initial search for Sarah McDermott. And while it officially closed in late 1990, it was an active landfill at the time of Sarah's disappearance. A private investigator sent a letter to city council requesting to do an excavation of the tip, but the council denied the request. The council said the tip covered more than 10 hectares, and since it was closed, it had been revegetated into bushland. And if A body was hidden there, it would be at least 20 meters down under concrete and building waste, so it would be nearly impossible to find. And for those thinking, what about like ground penetrating radar? That's a thing. Well, apparently that technology looks for disturbances in soil, and a landfill would be nothing but soil disturbances, so it likely wouldn't be able to locate a body. Uh, But for those who are like, I want more information, and this wasn't enough, um, Case File did a nine-part series about this case uh, in 2021 called Searching for Sarah. Um, I did listen to the first episode uh, to get some background on Sarah's childhood and what she was like, because I couldn't find that um, in my regular searches often when I'm researching, I prefer not to listen to other podcasts. I know how much work goes into researching an episode, and I don't want to use someone else's hard work, but I also want the case to lead me in its own way as opposed to the way it possibly led someone else. So I try and get my sources or my information from other sources. But if you're looking for more podcasts on this specific one case file uh, has you covered... Um, In the episode that I did listen to, hearing Sarah's mother use the phrase, as a mother, was so incredibly charming. But hearing her talk about the night that Sarah disappeared, saying, quote, I wasn't there for her, is so incredibly heartbreaking. Uh, And we have done a lot of cases that feature missing people that have yet to be found. For example, Madeline McCann, Natalie Holloway, Kiara Coles, Cindy Song, Kristen Montefiore, Rico Harris, Bison Daly, Susan Cox Powell, and now Sarah McDermott. We also did some Dateline and Unsolved Mysteries episodes in our first season that featured disappearances of Lena Chapin, Gary McCullough, Angela Green, Christopher Dansby, and Shane Walker. Some of these people have been missing for 33 years, and I think that is what sticks with me long after we've moved on to another episode. It's not, it's the not knowing that breaks my heart for these families the most. And I think Sarah McDermott's mother, Sheila, put it best when she said, quote, People think it gets easier with time, but it doesn't. Not knowing what happened wears you out. I still keep hoping that she will walk through the door, but my greatest fear is I will never know. It's living with all my unanswered questions that is the hardest burden to bear. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough.
1: Wowzer. Heartbreaking quote from mom there. My God. Um, Listen, let's take one more quick break and then we'll come back and give you our thoughts uh, in just a second lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, So grab another drink, hit the can, get a Gatorade, and we'll see you right back on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
1: All right, we're talking the Sarah McDermott case, and God, what a... I just want to say, what a mass amount of murders were going on in that area yeah. at that time. It must have been terrifying. My God. Um. Okay, here we go. Where am I? Those are Kiera Cole's notes uh, on our update. Okay, here we go. So, I just... I mean, listen, you've brought forth so many great suspects here. Um, and, of course, I know that some of them are unknown. Uh, but it just feels – I think the thing that I keep bumping up against is the fact that her body's never been found. Oh, I know. But so many of the other bodies have. And I understand that this landfill sounds like it could potentially be the answer to that, which is unfortunate because it sounds like you'll we'll never get an answer. Right. Um, but it's weird to me. If it was a first kill, for example, it feels it it would be exceptionally. I feel like it would be exceptionally lucky to for the body to not have been found. Do you know what I mean? Like, so that's 100%. something that I keep I keep bumping up against. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm I'm going to go through all of it. So Jody Jones, this some this seems like the simplest answer. You know what I mean? Sometimes we talk about the simplest answer might be true. It's, you know, the fact that there was witnesses saying they saw her with, you know, covered in blood, the the fact that there was potentially uh, other men with her, this was a robbery gone awry, that makes sense. I mean, she was carrying a tennis racket, which I think that – I'll speak for myself. If I see someone carrying a tennis racket, I would look at that person and think they probably – have money um tennis is not something that i think and i'm not saying that this is correct at all but i think that there is a perception of tennis being um like a rich sport now again i know that that is not the truth but i'm just saying if you're targeting someone for a robbery i could see that being um someone that may look appealing you know what i mean sure um the fact that there was also that witness that heard her saying, like, give me, give me my keys back, like, this isn't funny. This also seems like it could be one of these things where this small group approaches, you know, kind of grabs the keys out of her hand, like, they're whatever, and then things escalate. And you know what I mean? Like, I could see it being, yeah, you know, the fact that her tone didn't seem panicked at first says to me that she was probably trying to mitigate her panic or didn't want to appear panicked. Sure. That's what my gut would would say about that. But I could see this being someone like grabs her keys, they're tossing them to each other and, you know, then they threaten her and, and something, you know, obviously it goes awry. Now, where does that one fall apart for me? Again, where is the body? And if yeah. this was a robbery, they then have the keys to a vehicle. And if you want some money, I would suggest that you could take that car. Now, I understand that maybe they were trying not to get caught, but they did also take her belongings. So it's just an interesting dichotomy to me. If the only purpose of this crime or or, excuse me, the original purpose of this crime was was to rob her. It just seems odd to me that then she was never found and the car wasn't taken. Right. Because, again, it's it's how are they transporting this body? right Great like point. if this is if this is Jody Jones and we know that she was with these people with the people that were with her were people without housing i don't know that they would necessarily they may have access to a vehicle but do you know what i'm saying like it's like this so this this one felt the simplest to me but then it just unravels to me because again it's the fact that the body has never been found to me if this is a an accidental murder it was just supposed to be a robbery and it went awry. Yeah. How are they so good at hiding this body? Yeah. And and, and how did they transport it? Do you know what I mean? So again, that one just doesn't make sense to me. Um Not impossible. There's a million different ways that that, I'm sure that could have happened. But let's also not forget this is 1990. This is before cell phones. So it's not like they could call somebody and say, hey, we have a problem. Can you come help us bring your car? Whatever. You know what I mean? Like, again, it just starts to, this one just starts to unravel for me a little bit um, as you go through it. Now, Bandali Debs, Um, all of these armed robberies, this. Oh, my God, like execution-style oh, killing of the, of, the, of the cops there. My God, the fact that he was doing this with a 17-year-old boy, like so many layers, so many layers here. Um, I also wrote down, Silky Emperor sounds delicious. <laughs> I just love the name of it. And yeah. you have never had Korean barbecue, I'm assuming. I have and not. The next time you come, we're going. I've written that down. It's delicious. So the the issue that I had written down here was – Does the M.O. match? And then, of course, you did address this later that it's like some killers do change their M.O.s, which is true. Richard Ramirez was somebody who changed his M.O. consistently. Sure. Um, It's not impossible. But the fact that he came back up again later is, again, fascinating to me. I don't know. I don't know about this one. I mean, yes. Is it possible? Of course it is. But but I don't know. There's just something about that one that didn't speak to me, and I, I don't know why. I really do I I can't explain why. So I'm going to keep moving and I'll get back to him. Um, Ashley Colston, uh, this is fascinating. At age 14, abducted two teachers and then went on to b- build a mini yacht. And it appears that he, or the micro yacht, it appears that that happened before he started to kill. And my gut is telling me that he did that solitary go on a boat, I'm going to try and sail to whatever because sure. he was trying to be alone. That says to me that he knew because, he, he, again, he, he's, he did that abduction at 14. He's clearly had thoughts of killing. It says to me, but building a micro yacht and sailing for long periods of time alone, That's a that's a person who's having thoughts of killing and is like, I know that this is wrong and I'm going to try and take myself away from society so I don't do it. Sure. And then eventually it just became too much. You can't live that life forever, et cetera, et cetera. That's my gut there. Um, so because of that, because he he absolutely knows the difference between right and wrong and I think could have been potentially policing himself until he no longer did. Again, this is all speculation I'm creating. Sure. Um, I think he could beat a, a personality disorder test. Like, I think that this person may not show typical signs because this sounds like somebody who potentially was trying not to kill and then did. Yeah. Uh, but do I believe that this person does not have a personality disorder? No. I think that, you know, there's a theory, of course, that every human has the ability to kill someone. Um, and I think that that, is in, that applies to if you're in a killer be killed situation. Do you have the ability to to kill in in self-defense? And I think, yeah, I think that we have that as humans in us. But to go and kill for the sake of killing, I don't think everybody has that in them. And I do think that it is impossible that this person's brain is an absolutely 100% typical um, brain without a personality disorder or some head trauma or something because, sorry, I don't buy it. Um, But yes, also fascinating that that was for the defense. It was like he's completely normal. Like, what? I I shouldn't use the word normal. Uh, Normal's relative. Sure. Rather, it it doesn't exist in the mental health world. Um, He is typical is what I guess I should say. Um, uh, Okay, Paula. Now we're on to Paula. Um, What's interesting here is the MO stayed so the same, right? This is consistent. And the fact that she immediately gave up as soon as it was like we're testing the DNA. Two things. Do I think that it's possible that she killed Sarah? I do. But it, again, it is the fact that that body was never found and this would potentially have been an early kill for Paula that just feels, I don't know. I don't know whether I buy it. Again, you know, it it feels like. I mean, again, the mo is pretty much identical, or or we don't know that because we've never found uh, Sarah's body, obviously. Right. But it, it, it feels like it aligns, um, and if, again, the fact that there's so much about cars, in in, and that's not even just in this one. All of the other the other uh, long list of victims who were taken in, with someone luring them into cars. It's just such an interesting. Theme across the board for these killers. It's right? a, It's like a, It's like they're all sharing similar t- traits, which is terrifying. And again, it just. I feel like it's. Oh my god. Anyway, um, again, the fact that she got into that woman's car and then waited for her to get back in the car. I just wrote, lock your cars. I really just want to put down. Even if you're running in somewhere for five seconds, and this is not me victim shaming at all. Um, it nope. was a different time. Uh, and, yeah. and, and also, you know, I, I've done it, but this is reminding me, not again. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Lock your cars. Oh, there was, Lock there were cars. so
2: many reports after that death in particular that were like, there wasn't a woman in the area who didn't check her back seat after that came out or didn't make sure that her doors were locked. And yeah, you're right. It was a completely different time. You wouldn't think, no. Anything like it. Again, I've done it now. I've
1: run in somewhere and I've left my car unlocked. Sometimes by accident. Do you know what I mean? Like not even thinking. I'm going to have to keep my – again, I have a true crime podcast. I know better. Um. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I do now. Oh, my God. Um, Again, the childhood head injury with Paula. Yep, absolutely. And this whole story – of this childhood and slapping that boy so hard, stealing a car before age thirteen, assault an assault charge at fifteen, forcing someone forcing another kid to masturbate in front of children. I I, I mean, listen. Nobody in that family thought, "Hey, Paul is troubled." Nobody in that family thought maybe Paula yeah. needs some help. My God, screaming the the cat. That I appreciate oh. not knowing all the details for, you know what I mean? Like, no, at no point did those parents not want to—I don't know—think about some kind of counseling. I—I'm I, sorry again. I know it was a different time and whatever, but that's wild. And I also love applied to applied to the police force, but but failed the physical. And I was like, what about the assault charge at 15? Can you get on the police? Well, maybe I don't know. Again, who knows? But again. Wild. Uh, again, going from applying to the police force to taking a job where you can build your own weapons. I mean, again, it just feels... There was so many signs along the way, I guess, for me, with with Paula, you know? And I, I sure. again, I'm not blaming anyone but Paula for those murders, of course. But it just feels insane to me that no one in in Paula's life at any point leading up thought, hey, maybe we should try to intervene. On all of these behaviors, you know, oh a hundred
2: percent.
1: Um, I also cannot handle the fact that this person is up for parole, and I encourage I everyone in that area to um protest and 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 do everything you need to do to to remind the courts that this person should not be out on the street. It's important. I know that that there's. I'm sure that the families of of, of the victims will be doing the same. Um, but it's really important because after that amount of time has passed, you know, it's important to remind new, new judges, new, uh, parole boards, whatever, that it's like, this is not somebody, this is somebody who will reoffend. And I, I, I can state that as a fact. I think that we have done this long enough to say this person will kill again. There is no doubt in my mind. I don't believe that that's a rehabilitable, uh, you know what I mean? I don't buy it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially if there is a diagnosis of sadistic personality disorder. You can't just get rid of a personality disorder. You can do things to um, better yourself and – you know what I'm saying? But there has to be a want. You have to want to better yourself and I don't – I'm not getting that vibe. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That doesn't – not striking me as that. So I agree with you that it makes sense. I mean, again, the proximity – with with, that Paula lived so close to the station that one of the other victims was taking so close to where Sarah had been, had been taken. Uh, The fact that there is the the gap in time, isn't super alarming to me other than Paula being so young at the time. Again, it just feels advanced in terms of getting again, hiding a body that well, but it could be as simple as, as that landfill that, I mean, that isn't a wild concept, right? Like, and, and again, just got lucky. Um, But it is the fact that the rest of those crimes happened within a seven-week span. Um, Yeah. Is it impossible to me? No, but it just feels like if she – excuse me. If she had killed um, uh, Sarah, it feels like then there would have been a string. And I know what we're saying is there could have been other crimes. I mean it's also possible – what about Melinda, Melinda Freeman and Michelle Brown? What if that was Paula?
2: More than possible. Right?
1: I mean, again, it's it's within that span of time.
2: I think it was um, Paula who had told police or had told someone she went to school with Michelle.
1: Well, now I'm starting to lean a certain way. I was leaning another way, but now I'm starting to lean a certain way. Sure. But again, it also feels to me like um, the unknown serial killer your suspect number 5 i feel like this could be attributed to um bendali as well uh, 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 sorry bendali as well but also you there's so much crossover happening that it's it's like is somebody mimicking somebody else this is the other you know what i'm saying like is it possible yeah. now again we're getting into an age category here where i don't know that Paula could be responsible for the murders in 1980 and 1981 that's that doesn't feel possible but uh, is there another person you know what i'm saying like it just feels wild yeah. to me but the again the reason why that unknown serial killer the person that killed that did those six murders those bodies were all found. And I think the fact that they were found, there was a group of three of them found together. And then yeah. uh, the, the the last one you were saying wasn't as well covered. That killer wanted those bodies found. That's part of the MO for that killer, in my opinion. Sure. If you're finding the bodies, again, a group of three, that's so deliberate. Um, to me, that that again sticks out as not be that's part of that killer's MO is wanting to ha- put the body somewhere and have someone find it so for sure. sarah not to be found that also doesn't add up you could right? the, the, the sarah's body could have just been left there for this this killer right or again this killer did move the body so again maybe somewhere else but i don't know it just doesn't that one doesn't add up um but again and then i wrote i wrote down i was like other serial killers do take breaks we know that the golden state killer BTK Again, ostensibly sure. stopped. They they killed for sprees and then just stopped for years. Right? So. Sure. Uh, um, Okay. And yes. And, and again, the fact that Bendali, that feels like a, absolutely there's crossover, but this Harold Janman character feels like, come on. That's yeah. gotta be, I mean, you don't have a, you don't have an alibi and you failed two polygraphs come on and that's sad because he's dead and we'll never know um right. potentially um and it's also mr stinky i i uh, like that there is a suspect i can call mr stinky that feels uh appropriate um that one doesn't didn't, didn't ring for me either uh, but could with sarah i did, that one he didn't ring for me with these the 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 string of the other um, victims. But who knows? Sure. Um, if, if could he have... It could have been Sarah. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Could Mr. Stinky have been uh, responsible for that? Who knows? Right? <laughs> We're putting another one on the table, is my point. Or I am. Sure. So, sure. Um, and the fact that Michelle Brown was also on that same street, it's gotta be connected. It To... to you know what I mean? It just feels like how are all of these things happening on that street? My God, um, it's so sad that they can't dig up that landfill. That's the last the last note that I had written. It's so sad, and and also I understand the point. Like there's part of me that's like screw it, do it anyway, go through the concrete. Like, but but then I also understand that sure. it's like after this much time has passed, would anything even be findable? I don't know. I don't know how that right. works. Like I don't know how human remains that are pressed in landfill for that amount of time under sure. the weight of concrete and and all of the above is it is there anything to find? Would you still find bones? I don't I don't know the answer to that. My gut is telling me yes, that. but it's I mean again if it's that far down, 20 meters down or whatever you said, that's significant. Oh, yeah. It would be like a needle in a haystack, is what it sounds like to me.
2: Oh, yeah. Because they'd have to go over the entire thing. Yeah. And that's an insane amount of space. So, I mean, I get it. The second I heard, like, oh, council said no, I was like, do it anyway. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get, I get why they said no based on, you know, it's, it's got, plants on it now and it's you know digging all of that up i get it but there's still that part of me that's like in the end if they found yeah at least a body or who knows maybe multiple bodies wouldn't it be worth yes for just that peace of mind but again i mean i get why i get why they've said no i still i would still be on team
1: dig up don't get me wrong i, I would oh, still be yeah. like it's worth trying don't get me wrong i'm just saying it's oh 100 I, I i'm curious about like what the science is like how 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 much would even be achievable i don't know but i but listen i i'm with you i would still say it's worth it. it's worth it's worth the time and the money obviously if and to your oh, point yeah. you, there could be more bodies in there great point yes great point yeah, you never know. You never know. Well, listen, before,
2: before we wrap this up, I got to ask you, who do you like for this? I mean, it's tough. I I was definitely um, right from the start leaning more Paula Denia, Yeah. But it's, I don't think someone so young could you know, I feel someone so young could commit a crime like that, but I don't feel that they could like hide a body. And then none of the rest of the crimes involved like hard to find hidden bodies.
1: Yeah.
2: Or is that part of it? Was that the first kill? And then she was annoyed because she didn't get the props of like, the body wasn't found and that was upsetting so it's like well next time i'm going to make sure that you find the body so i get the credit and kind of thing that is more than possible um there's something to me about the fact that sarah well we believe it was sarah um said like stop fooling around give me my keys back like that is something you say to someone your age or younger yes that is not something you say to like an older man when you're alone together in a parking lot that is something you say when someone when you're like frustrated with a child yeah and you're like ah oh, stop fooling around just give me my keys like that's so immediately on that i was like okay i'm back to considering is denya where i'm leaning or is Jody jones somewhere i'm leaning because if she's Just sitting in a parking lot with her friends, that seems the type that would fool around and see her and be like, oh, let's go pick on her, grab keys, and then who knows what happened. Something led to something else, and maybe Sarah got stabbed. But again, if that was the case, then why didn't they just leave the body and take off? Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. It's weird that they had the thought of like, okay... We need to take this and we need to take her stuff and we need to get it gone. Yeah. And then leave the car. Whereas if you took the car and even like took it anywhere, sold it, burned the inside, did something to it. If you took it, police would have shown up to that and not known where she parked. They would have shown up to it and just been like, how do we know she didn't drive off on her own? How do we know she didn't leave on her own? Sure, the blood would have been found in the parking lot, but would they have focused on it or been like, well, her car's not here, so. Yeah, great point. Great point. So it's just weird that, to your point, it's weird they left the car.
1: It's It would be, to me, if it was them, it's the weirdest that they left the car. If they're going to the trouble of moving a body, it's the weird. it's weird to me that they had a vehicle and the keys seemingly in their yeah. hand. And they didn't use that car. Yeah. That's odd to me. If it was them, um, you know what's interesting? This just hit me too. When Paula was asked, and immediately was like, "Not Sarah." That makes it sound like there was more victims. Yeah, to me, well, it was like not that one. Yeah, agreed. You know what I mean? And it's like so. So to me, if I am convinced of the Michelle Brown and and Melinda Freeman possibility being Paula, sure. You know, it's just, and, and then if that's true, then that makes me think even more that it, there could be the connection to Sarah, and and but but you're right, it does feel like it could have been one of those things where she did shift her mo so that the bodies would be found. I just don't know. It was just such a spree. Three years I know, later,
2: all in that it feels or in seven weeks. It just feels, yeah. It just feels like it would have been
1: a spree. Yes, especially if you're, you know, younger and you've been having these thoughts, and they've been escalating. Yeah. I don't know. Well, let me tell you, confounding stuff. Yeah. Um, I I can see why you uh, wanted to cover this one because, really, truly, it is heartbreaking. Um, but yeah, wow, uh, amazing work as always. You are too kind. Yeah, I speak the truth. Uh, Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Uh, We're so appreciative uh, to have you here with us. We're so appreciative of your support through Season 3 of True Crime and Cocktails. Um, uh, Like I said at the beginning of the show, this is the final episode of Season 3. We're going to take a couple weeks off, and uh, we will be back July 19th with an episode that we will determine (laughs) between... And July 19th. Yep. Um, So stay tuned for that. Um, At the time of this episode's airing, I, of course, am going to do a massive launch on truecrewmerch.com for merch with our new adorable faces on it. Um, Even the detail of the black headphones on Christy and the white headphones on me. I know, but can I just say, when you
2: lift it up, suddenly... Both of your tits are like flesh tone. And so when you lift it up really quickly, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm always concerned that uh, too much is being shown. But no, I. What I love is that I'm hungover, but I'm not that hungover. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not that. Oh, hungover. yeah. No, I, uh, I mean, I've seen it all. I wasn't shocked at the thought of seeing it. I was shocked at the thought of you showing people. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Listen, yeah, yeah. If I'm yeah. gonna do that, I'm gonna charge for it. Stay tuned for my OnlyFans, <laughs> anyway. Um, so go to TrueCrewMerch.com and check out the new merch. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, it will be available. Um, and if you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Not Detectives. On Twitter, and if you're looking for a little more content, if you've if you've caught up on all of our episodes, and you, we're we're black for two weeks, we're dark for two weeks. Um, you want some more? Go to Patreon.com/slash cocktails. We've got bonus episodes over there. We do four bonus episodes a month. We do a live monthly Q and A. Uh, there's a poll over there. All kinds of things. Um, so check that out if you are interested. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people?
2: Good night, season three.
1: Oh, good night season 3.